the best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. How, how would you argue if Johnny Sexton was to go and win a World Cup with Ireland and lead them to it that he wouldn't be the greatest? Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, slightly unusual weekend and obviously there was no Premier League, but if you've got anything you want to talk to us about this morning, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream or however else you want to get in touch with us this morning. We welcome it. Uh, Kathleen McAmey is with us all the way until 10 this morning. Kathleen, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I uh, didn't really know what to do with myself over the weekend without any football to watch, but managed to get through all right. Yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a little bit Strange. Obviously, Shane Larry winning was um, something that very many Irish people were uh, able to plant themselves in front of the TV and enjoy over the course of yesterday. Uh, the Sevens suddenly flirted briefly with getting into the mainstream sporting consciousness, maybe? Very closely. Best result they've ever had. So, I mean, it's definitely something for the future that we hopefully can keep building on. I know there's been a lot of talk, especially on the women's side, about Sevens in this country with a connection to the main squad but yeah I mean it's a great result we will talk about it a little bit later on about how great we actually think it is <laughs> it's uh, it's made for TV right it's made for, sorry it's made for social media as opposed to TV where like uh, Baben Parsons gets the ball runs past six people and touches down it's try and it's like wow that's amazing um, I do I do wonder how as a country we have tapped into the support I mean it, it's funny like um, they are very well supported on social media but do 15s fans like 7s rugby? I don't think it has fully tapped into that consciousness just yet I mean it's kind of like you were saying there whenever an Irish team briefly flirts with any sort of success we all jump on the bandwagon it doesn't really matter how interested we are in the sport or not Um, I think I'm all in favour of bandwagons I have to say (laughs) we need more of them as a small country we have to take as many of them as we can get Uh, I don't know I think people kind of look down their noses slightly on sevens if you're a 15 supporter or at least that's with conversations I've had with people that tends to be it and I don't think they see it as as hard a sport or as competitive a sport and maybe that is just as well the difference in terms of the professionalism of it all but yeah, I mean, like it was a great achievement and long may it continue. Um, what about the draw on Friday? Feels like a long time ago now at this stage still to be talking about the draw, but it was a bit of a stinker of a draw. We're going to be going to Scotland or Austria. We're going to be going to Austria, really, right? Yeah, that seems to be the most likely outcome. Although if we do go to Scotland, we'll be playing in Hampton Park, which will be quite cool. Um, it was the worst draw we could have got. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean we're not going to qualify from it, but I think it definitely seems a lot more likely now that we will be going to that intercontinental tournament in New Zealand in the new year. I mean, I literally, as they were calling the names out, I was like, please not us, please not us, please not us. And then it happened. And I think it's interesting because it's the one thing like Vera Pau or Katie McCabe or a lot of the team have talked about that we haven't really had a lot of luck. We've had to go through things ourselves and we've had to rely on ourselves and we were really hoping that this was going to be the stage where we get that little bit of the rub of the green 
but sadly it wasn't to be. Although if we beat Austria or Scotland and that ends up being our little bit of luck, then I will be perfectly happy with that. They're both ranked ahead of us in the world, right? Yes. It's not by much. I think we're 26th, Austria 20th and Scotland are 23rd. Here's the proof in the truism that, oh, we're better against the good teams because we actually play a very defensive style of football and we'll, we'll be happy for them to have the ball. So, you know, maybe it's all been building up to this for a famous away win to uh, get us, uh, like, uh, even if we win this, the likelihood is we're just going to the um, intercontinental tournament as opposed to... Uh, actually getting to work. Yeah, up. we need someone else to do us a favour. Although, of the teams, okay, I didn't really want Austria. If we play Scotland, I think we're in with a good chance of winning. And I would have rather them than, say, like a Portugal or something who play a very skillful one touch. Like, oh, we could just fluid. kick them, though, right? <laughs> we could, but other teams tried it during the Euros and were sadly mistaken in their tactics. So. Um, I, I'd rather take a Scotland or someone that we actually know a bit better than maybe a Portuguese side. But uh, actually, that doesn't matter now because we're playing either Scotland or Austria. <laughs> we're going to talk about Chelsea and we're going to talk about uh, Spurs' season so far. There is going to be European action this week. Uh, Sporting and Tottenham are playing tomorrow night in the Champions League. That one is in Lisbon. Um, Martin Lipton's going to join us in a while, but we, we should talk about uh, Thomas Tuchel's statement, which came out yesterday on the weirdest Twitter account that there is out there. It's... Um, uh, at T. Tuchel official and he uses it so often that uh, Twitter didn't even bother verifying this one so you know you pay your money you take your choice the last week before this was in um, 2020 which was uh, in German and the one before that was him retweeting PSG's announcement that um, he was getting a contract all the way through till 2021 <laughs> which obviously didn't happen and then the one before that is a picture of him in Paris and the one before that is a picture of him Noel Gallagher and Ilkay Gundogan at Man City Spurs where it looks like he's a tourist from 2017 it's like hanging out what a combination <laughs> it's, it's, oh, when I first saw this account I was fully convinced it wasn't real and it was only when a lot of the bigger papers and stuff actually reported it and like Reuters had a line out on it I was like oh this is actually his real account you do need to be careful with that stuff I mean obviously the Daily Mail were reporting on Tony Cascarino's um, somber uh, not eating of his Chinese and then it turned out that wasn't true at all they, uh, it's like we were just talking about it in the office uh, it's kind of genius in that like it's totally believable mm. that's they're the ones the best parodies are like I mean this sounds ridiculous but, but it could be true the same guy who tweeted the Tony Cascarino stuff had also tweeted something else the other week that had gone viral and the Daily Mail had also picked up on that so I feel like they were just mining him for good stories at this stage I think Mary Hannigan pointed out that he might be the same guy maybe might not be Mary Hannigan somebody else pointed out that this could well be the same person who had the infamous line about um, Frank Lampard going well I, I voted Tory and I agree with all their policies <laughs> but I'm not a Tory apparently he, he never said it he, he didn't say it so he may well be a Tory uh, I guess is the point that we should make from that. But anyway, back to Thomas Tuchel's statement. This is one of the most difficult statements I've ever had to write, and it is one which I hoped I would not need to do for many years. I'm devastated that my time as Chelsea has come to an end. This is a club where I felt at home, both professionally and personally. Thank you so much to all the staff, the players and supporters for making me feel very welcome from the start. The pride and joy I felt at helping the team to win the Champions League and the Club World Cup will stay with me forever. I'm honoured to have been a part of this club's history and the memories of the last 19 months will always have a special place in my heart. Uh, in our accelerated culture, 19 months as the Chelsea boss is a lifetime in many cases. So uh, it does open up the question, where does he go next? I don't know. I mean, I saw people talking about Juventus as a possible option for him next. I mean, he should really have his pick of the places. I know he left Chelsea with a lot of 
the stuff around him about culture and that he didn't get on well with Bowley and but I mean if you look at his record there what he actually managed to do with the team I still think it was a little unfair that they got rid of him when they did I think they should have given him a bit more time that, that, you know, you would say based on track record of success, etc. Yeah, except that, like, if the relationship with the owners breaks down to a point where he's blue ticking them on WhatsApp, you just can't do that. I, that I, is true. The, the weird communication and the use of the Twitter account is definitely something. I don't know. Is, is there a possibility that that he's really damaged by this? That like, I think it depends on what happens in the like general behind the scenes circles. I don't think he's going to be really, really damaged. I think there'll definitely be clubs out there who'll see that there are two sides to the whole thing, and that well, maybe the owners should have made more of an effort to ask him like what he wanted to do within the club and the role he wanted to play, because it seems to be that Bowley came in and just took over a little bit and told him exactly what he wanted from him and didn't leave a lot of room for manoeuvre there and Tuchel doesn't strike me as the sort of man who reacts well to that. So Fair enough. So maybe if, like, in the Bayern Munich scenario where there's loads of people whose job it is to sign the players and he has some involvement but not all the things and he's, like, not actually having to do any extra extra work other than coaching the team and everybody's being yeah. signed with it. And if you look at the place. relationship that he had with Abramovich and what he did guide Chelsea through last season, rightly or wrongly, they were able to get on so he's clearly able to get on with some people yeah yeah I don't know I wonder how much of that I'm putting in my CV gets on well with oligarchs I mean <laughs> look maybe that's the yeah, gets on well with oligarchs from a part of the world but not the other side of the world well, I was going to say when you look at who owns most football clubs then that's probably something alright to have on your CV it's 7.39 this morning. You're watching OTBM. We're live with you each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It is time for the performance rankings. And uh, Sorry, this is coming up. Yeah, 7.35 performance rankings. Uh, a bit late. Martin Lipton's going to join us at 10 past 8 this morning. We'll run you through the sports pages and the weekend's uh, Club GA. Mike Carlson's going to join us. The NFL is back. That'll be at 9.50. Jenny Claffey's going to join us in studio. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz has announced himself as uh, an absolute global superstar after winning the US Open uh, Schwantek the night before had uh, cemented her place as a superstar that's a 19 and a 21 year old who are dominating at the US Open and uh, some brilliant stuff from Brian Kerr and Kenny Cunningham yesterday in studio instead of our live football uh, it's going to be very interesting to see when they get all these games played and if they just announce that the entire season is going to go back an extra week so we'll talk about that and everything else coming up in the Gillette Labs performance rankings you know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second-half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. Our performances have just lacked that intensity. So just to explain, we use a traffic light system in case you're new to this. Uh, green is generally good. Amber is like, oh, I'm not sure if you're good or bad. Or, you know, you could be better or it could be worse. And then red is obviously uh, for the bad. Um, to, you know... Um, maybe reveal a little bit about how today's show has been made. There's a lot of golf in this, Kathleen. I didn't have you pegged as a, as a golf wanker like the rest of the, the people here. But actually, these were Nathan's performance rankings that we're doing. These are Nathan's performance rankings. And you're very right about me not being a golf aficionado. Um, it, it wouldn't be my strongest sport in the world, but we're going to give it a go anyways. And sure, I was following along yesterday, as I think most of Ireland was, like you are saying at the top of the show, with Lowry and McElroy, both in contention. 
Um, are we starting with the bad golf or the good golf? Let's start with the bad golf. Uh, start with the bad golf. I think, um, so there was a really interesting interview yesterday with Patrick Reed in the, the Sunday Times where he was talking about how they've turned him into the black hat and that um, there's a massive conspiracy that golf decided they needed a villain. Patrick Reed won a tournament and was like, oh, I'm the top five players in the world. And everybody was like, yeah, you're the guy. And um, he was making the point that, uh, so Patrick Reed was accused of all sorts of things, um, cheating and theft while he was in college. He says he's got uh, two sworn affidavits, essentially, from coaches to say that the cheating never happened and the theft never happened, which, you know, is kind of important because that was the first story that came out about Patrick Reed. And then there was all the stuff about um, him essentially divorcing his family, not quite mm. Macaulay Culkin style, but uh, similar enough that, um, you know, that the, the family aren't in contact anymore and that his wife... Uh, has taken the brunt of American golf fans who, let's face it, might be the worst people on the planet. You know, there's like a... They're not a great bunch. <laughs> the, the competition is very intense, but American golf fans will be right up there as um, some of the worst people on the planet. And uh, how frequently, you know, she's uh, crying behind her sunglasses. And so that was the piece that was published on Sunday morning, I think, in the Sunday Times. And then he ripped the course up mm. with a 62 and was like, he's going to win this tournament. This is absolutely sensational. So that would have been like the biggest triumph that Live Golf could possibly have had if um, Patrick Reed tells everybody, actually, there is this conspiracy. He's, he's got a like multi hundred million, multi hundreds of millions. I can't remember. Is it 260 or is it 700 million lawsuit going against um, the Golf Channel and NBC and one of the Golf Channel commentators. So it's, it's wild stuff, right? It's yeah. like very, very interesting stuff. On the other side of this, from the Live Golf perspective, is Sergio Garcia, who has not come out very well from all of the stories around the uh, transfer of Live Over. The, the texts between him and Greg Norman were obviously released as part of the, the ongoing court case, which, again, won't finally work its way through the system until early next year. And uh, it seemed like he was, you know, he was earning his money for Live. Um, Garcia always just seems to be at the front of something controversial or at the front. Like, it's consistently week in, week out, he is saying something that offends someone or he is doing something that offends the culture of golf or the, the I suppose, politeness that they like to think that they put around the entire thing. And I think the fact that after everything everyone has said about Liv, what he did this weekend was not great at all when you think of the players that are stuck up in this legal case and don't get to play so um, Pat, one of Patrick Reed's points was like I deserve to be here I'm, I have done as much for this tour as anybody has I've played it as often if not more often than a lot of the people complaining about the fact that I'm and other live golfers are here so he might have a case I, you know, I don't know the stats on how often he's played in the European tour or the DP World Tour or the DP Tour whatever it's called these days uh, over the last number of years but he certainly felt like he was worthy of his place in the field at Wentworth it's a big tournament from a European tour perspective you know there's points and money on offer that will allow some people to save their card and so therefore save their livelihood and that's why pre-tournament McElroy was saying you know these guys shouldn't be here they're taking up space that other people really need there was a bunch of people who'd said that Larry said the same thing one of the people who you know who was supposed to be like a European tour you know Ryder Cup if there was a crest on his heart, I'm sure he would have kissed it for the uh, for the crowd performatively down through the years. Was Sergio Garcia, who took a, took his place in the tournament, right, mm. and then stank the joint out on day one, four over par. Day two, as we know, got cancelled, 
Um, and then there was a debate about whether that was going to happen again. And then uh, day three, come tea off time. Just isn't there. No, doesn't show up. It's like, well, I'm not going to win now. There's no cut, right? Mm. So there's no reason to leave. Mm. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. There was a cut after those rounds, wasn't there? Uh, I think so, there was. Okay, either way, either way, Sergio Garcia withdraws from the BMW PGA. And of course he goes quietly. He doesn't then, turn up anywhere that he shouldn't turn up afterwards, right? Uh, Texas, Alabama. Uh, big game in college football. Mm-hmm. You know, two, two big, big teams. And there he is uh, in the end zone, pre-kickoff, having the crack. Now, I don't know who he's with, but he's with somebody. I don't know if that's... Um, I actually don't know. Is that his wife? I have no idea. It could be. I'm not sure. Um, so there you go. Sergio, not arsed, playing in the tournament that he's taken the place of somebody who really needs the place, uh, has done a little bit of um, shilling for Liv, and um, maybe he should be the black hat as opposed to Patrick Reeves. He I certainly, you know, <clears throat> he fits the bill. Off the basis of the weekend, I think he deserves it. And it's a bit like you were saying, I mean, maybe Patrick Reed has played this event many, many times before and has earned that place there. But even just the fact that he turned up and stayed and didn't go fly over to the States for a college football game, because he would have had to have known he was going to that game a day or two before to actually make it over there. So he clearly finished up on the Thursday and just went, right, well, that's me. I'm gone. Uh, It turns out, and Greg Allen uh, tweeted this, Alfredo Farcia Heredia was <clears throat> the first alternate in the tournament. So if Garcia had pulled out instead of playing, your man would have got in. And his current situation is he's 134th on the um, road to Dubai with the cutoff for a card next season at 121. So he could easily have won enough money to save on. his career. And he's, he also happens to be a Spaniard. So I'm sure Sergio Garcia is very, very popular. In, uh, in that gaff and everywhere else so yeah, look you know when someone shows you who they are you should believe them very much so very very much so and it's, it's sad it's like you said like it's actually harming someone's career someone's potential earnings in the future for a man that definitely does not need extra money yeah so I think it's fair enough that Nathan would have put him in the red this morning mm-hmm. no I, I agree with Nathan on that one despite hopefully, not being the officiator that Nathan is <laughs> hopefully we've done some justice to it uh, right uh, okay if you have a view on that you can uh, leave a comment in the YouTube stream or of course you can always get us at off the ball AM on Twitter now also in the red this morning um, women's football in Galway yeah, Galway United released, or Galway, sorry, FC, they're not connected to Galway United, uh, released a statement over the weekend saying that they had reluctantly decided not to apply for inclusion in next season's Women's National League. And the statement was quite strange because they went on to talk about all the success they had had, you know, they mentioned the players that have come through the club that have been successful. They're only fifth in the league at the moment, so it's not like they're performing badly or anything. And it's just interesting because it just seems like another thing coming out of the this Galway team where they aren't performing all that well. I mean, they had Ruth Fahey as CEO for, <laughs> I think it was a couple of weeks, a couple of months in the end, and then ended up having to release an apology to her saying that they didn't have the structures in place to actually support a full-time CEO. Um, and it's just, it's sad for women's football in the country. It's sad for football in the country. And it's also sad for football in the West because, you know, we had Sligo Rovers joining this season. Everyone was really excited. There was a new team, new competition. Obviously, the women's team is smashing it at the moment as well. So 
I'm not sure. There has been some talk that maybe they will come under the Galway United banner and that that's why Galway have announced this because they're confident that that will happen. But, yeah, it just seems strange to go ahead with it if that is the case without a little bit of a backup plan or at least be able to say, like, look, guys, we've built all this and we've done all these amazing things. We're now passing the baton on to someone else and it's coming under that team. But... That's not what they decided to do. As you say, they're fifth in the table at the moment and it's like completely safe mid-table. Um, you know, they're on 36 points. Wexford Hughes and, and Shelburne are 49 and 48 points. So, like, they're not disgracing themselves. This isn't like everything has gone to pot uh, to complete shambles. It's actually the opposite. They seem to have built, and the statement is suggesting that they've built a throughput of talent. So it's a big challenge to the football people of Galway to rally around and, you know, uh, get together and, and come and sort it out. Uh, it, the speculation about Galway United is interesting, right? Because obviously uh, Galway United's takeover by the Comer group has, has been um, affected and so it looked like finally football in Galway is on a very secure footing. So it would make sense if under one banner football was to progress. But you would tend to hope that that would be done in the background and this announcement would happen. We're changing to Galway United. The systems have been put in place. Um, so yeah, exactly. And I know like there is a lot of eagerness for League of Ireland and like WNL clubs to be under the one banner within the FAI. So if that is the case, great, more power to them. But also, it just it seems a bit weird. And even with them blaming additional costs and demanding of time, and you're like, well, if you're a club that we're looking at putting in a full time CEO last year. And now you're all of a sudden saying it all costs too much and you can't run a club effectively. It just, it sounds like there's something more going on there. And I feel like this is definitely not the last we've heard of this story. Yeah, hopefully there is a team from Galway and ideally uh, from the same club as the men's team and um, football in Galway. Because it's like a hotbed of talent. Like that's the, that, the main point here is that like loads of young players have come through over the last while and are making it. Um, so yeah, we keep an eye on that one. In the amber... Today, we have decided to put um, the sevens. The Irish sevens, yeah. So the men today... Well, we were kind of debating about this one in the office beforehand because it was their best ever finish in... So the, it's kind of in the green. It's just so it's we, kind of in the green. We only have room for two greens. Is that, <laughs> is that what we're saying here? A little bit, a little bit. And I think while it was great that they got to where they did, I think there was some disappointment, especially with the defeat to New Zealand and that we could have very easily snuck a bit of a, a win there and we didn't manage to do it so great that to win the bronze medal and beat Australia in 1914 and you look at the names we're beating like South Africa, New Zealand Australia, we all know that they're big teams when it comes to rugby whether they're 7s or 15 so I think it, it was a great success for the men's and builds on a great year for them in general It's I'm, harsh that they're not in the green in fairness so It is a, it's a little harsh Anytime you reach a Rugby World Cup semi-final uh, you're trailblazers it turns out because we obviously have a quarter-final hex um, <laughs> we're like the, like the Mayo footballers slightly hexed uh, however um, we uh, look just didn't have enough room for green right yeah, they're officially the the women's team. I think were would they consider themselves unfortunate, but they ended up was it in the fifth to seventh? Seventh, the, the yeah. And so it wasn't it, for them. It definitely wasn't the tournament. I think that they wanted, um, especially after all the attention there has been on them this year. But we can we can salute the men for what they did, and we swear that this is a positive orange. This is we see what you're doing, and we're expecting you to do more next year because you're growing. <laughs> yeah, 
Okay. Uh, comments coming through. Apparently the football was cancelled as they expected fans to boo during the minute silence, especially places like Liverpool, says Damien. I mean, are they that terrified of a few people booing? I guess they are. If you were to look at the, uh, the um, Trevor Sinclair cancellation for like pointing out that you know there's a kind of slightly difficult history here uh, around colonialism folks and maybe this might be a big opportunity for us to revisit our attitudes uh, maybe a few boos would have been like I mean it might have been nice to see what their fallout yeah. would have well been, there is uh, there was an argument that it would make them look bad across the world and I feel like there's very mixed opinions across the world about the monarchy in general so I mean I think that's some, safe to say yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there are some people that would be like oh well that's not very respectful but I, or, or, I don't think it would have been the massive thing that the FA or the Premier League seem to think it was like or else you're a functioning democracy and people are saying uh, you know you're actually a democracy uh, and people are saying I have a difference of opinion here mm-hmm. like it's and again I don't know if people were specifically booing uh, the the dead queen as opposed to booing the notion of having a queen because they're, yeah. they're separate things but it's you know there's no time for nuance when the um, signs are up we're, we're in mourning and it's the opposite of house private so it's just it's been very interesting to watch what's going on the uh, the golfers were pulled off the course and you're like oh this is going to be a disaster they're they're ruining the golf for the weekend particularly when Shane Larry's in such good form and then it's like no nah, go back out what's the big deal like yeah. we just play it's fine and even like sports like rugby went ahead. I mean, most sports in England went ahead, I think, apart from the football argument being that she was like patron of the FA and that meant a bit more and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> wishy-washy, like very wishy-washy. Yeah. I don't know. I think maybe I, d- I don't know if they acted in haste or if there was something more to it, but it just does seem very bizarre that of all sports, it didn't go ahead. We're going to talk. Sorry, go on. Well, like, because you could just do, like, I think it would have made more sense to actually do um, tributes to her at the games, and it would have, rather than just nothing at all. I don't really get the whole idea of having complete silence over everything. Yeah. A minute's applause, maybe. Mm. Do you know? Exactly. And get rid of the views then. Um, Okay, so in the green. We have the one and only Shane Lowry. And also, we have the winner of the US Open, Alcaraz. The future of tennis. Yeah, it is It is here. It is now. He started the season like a house on fire, had a bit of a wobble around Wimbledon time and then roared back in. And uh, Jenny Claffey's going to join us in the studio so we can we can talk about this a bit more later on. Um, Schwantek, as I said, uh, you know, fairly sensational performance from her across the whole year, again, with the exception of Wimbledon. Um, so I don't know, maybe the fact that Wimbledon had no ranking points this year the kids People were like, didn't no, care as much. <laughs> no, not, not having it. Don't care. Show me your tradition. Show me the ranking point. That's all. Like, so we'll see <laughs> next season if they both come and win in Wimbledon. Uh, we'll be able to retrospectively fit that narrative nicely to it. But yeah. to the golf, right? So, um, as I said, Black Hat Patrick Reed comes out and rips the course up yesterday and uh, sets a clubhouse lead and sets a great score. And then John Ram starts like firing in the birdies and um, Shane Lowry matches them. And coming down the last... Larry has a putt for Eagle that he tickles down to the hole, gives himself a one-stroke lead, and the only other golfer out on the course with the opportunity to do anything to stop it, is to stop him winning, is Roy McIlroy. And, uh, Saw a lot of very confused fans yesterday about who they were supposed to be shouting for. <laughs> well, that's it, right? I think if you trace the week that um, Roy McIlroy has had, like the CEO of Whoop last week was tweeting that there's no other sport that uh, needs this one athlete more than golf at the moment 
and he got a lot of uh, flack for that. But like, he's he's an independent person. He's not like an Irish person who's going, oh, Rory McIlroy is the most person, important person in golf. But like, over the last five months, Rory McIlroy has become the most important person in golf. Like, Tiger is kind of uh, obviously in the background but not the force that he was because of the car accident and uh, is still recovering and recuperating for that. They've invented a whole new sport to try and popularise it where they're going to go to places like, you know, the O2 Arena, <coughs> pardon me, and the stadium thing that they're, they're talking about doing. So we'll see whether or not that works. He's like been this single bulwark against Live Golf. If he had decided to go, that would have been it. Like, golf would have been completely changed. And the amount of money that they must have offered him to do that is eye-watering. Like, it's the type of money that would... All the other golfers have found it impossible to turn down. But if they'd got Rory, that would have been the end of it. Mm. And so he comes out and puts his best form together uh, and, and wins the 16 million or whatever it was two weeks ago. And then on the last, he's standing over uh, the ball in the fairway knowing that he needs to make eagle to force a playoff against Larry, who has been, in fairness, uh, also this week, very strong about the whole thing. And he stitches it. like, mm. And then he's standing over the putt and it's like, well, uh, was it Wayne Riley doing the commentary? The the giant white hole is calling the ball towards it here. And I don't know if you saw the putt, but it like... I did, yeah. One, one more revolution. He just didn't hit it. He just didn't hit it. Do you think he's trying to make another hero for the golf tour? Or oh, 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 wow. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I, think, um, I think he's such a competitor that... Uh, but what a playoff it would have been. Oh, it would have been sensational. And I, I feel like there would have been a lot of horse voices afterwards, but it was great to see Lowry win and even his speech afterwards, I thought, was very good. And like you say, much like McElroy, he has been one of the voices speaking out against Liv over the last week and he's been quite strong and... I did kind of like when he was saying this is, you know, this is a win for the good guys. After all their talk there had been during the week about what was going to happen at this event, and I think maybe it was slightly calmed down by the fact that the Queen died and there was that extra day. I think attention moved off the politics of it slightly over the whole event. Um, and then Patrick Reed brought it all back up on Sunday and morning. And then Patrick Reed brought it all back up on Sunday morning. <laughs> um, and no better man. Like he's, uh, Patrick Reed's going to be an interesting character in this whole thing now over the next while. He's obviously decided he's going to start talking about stuff. He said he won't talk about the family stuff. Um, and so therefore, uh, yeah, he's got no defence against people accusing him of, um, you know, uh, whatever it is that they're accusing him of. So that will be interesting to see how that develops. Um, here's a question from the comments that I don't know the answer to. Would that have been uh, the first all-Irish playoff on the tour if Rory had hold that putt? That's from Rick Jagger. I don't know. Is there anybody out there who's a, a golf history buff who could tell us? Has there ever been a playoff with just a couple of Irish golfers? I don't know. Was there ever one with Harrington and somebody... That's what I was thinking. Was there ever one? I don't know. I mean, do you think that would be the era? If Nathan is sitting at home listening, he can text into the show because I feel like that's the sort of thing he might know. (laughs) From his sickbed. Danny Mack says, I like history, so after watching the monarchy history over the weekend, the Bundesliga should have been cancelled. Hey, hey, (laughs) see what you did there, Danny. We see what you did there. If you want to get in touch, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number, or of course you can get us on... uh, at off the ball am on twitter is the best twitter handle for the show uh, in terms of the tennis right so like quietly almost imperceptibly the era of djokovic federer and nadal has passed federer out with injury and may come and play like some kind of heritage act next season mm-hmm. 
Jenny Claffey was not writing Nadal off. You know, just that um, the only match that he lost this year in the Slams uh, was at the US Open. It's just that the power that he had over everybody was kind of psychological in a way. And that seems to have been broken just because his body is breaking down. And the other thing that's happened is obviously the young players coming through are really bloody good. Mm. So I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about the end of that era and the fact that something new is happening. I'm kind of excited for it. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't enjoy watching the three lads absolutely dominate, but it is nice to have other people to talk about and new conversations to have because it does get to a point where there is only so many times you can say that people are unreal. Um, I was fortunate enough to see a lot of the younger players play in Wimbledon when I covered it, not this year, this summer before. And it, it, there's just such an excitement and like you say, like the bodies of Nadal and Federer, like they are breaking down. They're not able to move around a court in the way that they used to be. They're still incredible athletes, but you're watching these younger players and there's a lightness to them that the older players might not have anymore. I agree with what Jenny said last week about not writing Nadal off yet. I think you look at the way he played this season. It's not as great as it has been in the past, but he still has a lot to give. Federer, yeah, I don't think anyone really expects all that much out of Federer for the the rest of the time that he does play. And, I mean, Djokovic is Djokovic. He's still, like, as much as these young guys are coming up, they still do have to get past that barrier of those. And those guys, as long as they're playing, they are going to be, like, a concern. And I think there's a difference aura around them to say there is someone like Serena when she was coming to the end of her career. You know, she was very much petering out, whereas I don't, think Nadal is quite there or and Djokovic definitely isn't there yet so I'm excited to see these younger players come up and I'm excited to talk about something else for a while um, because it's why I've always preferred the women's draw to a certain extent because you do have a bit more competition and there are a few more names in the loop and it's not just the same three which is probably sacrilegious of me to say to some people who are big Federer, Nadal and Djokovic fans. <laughs> it's funny, I totally understand the point. Uh, it's just that it felt like their their greatness was so great. Like, um, as compared with other previous eras, I, I don't know, maybe the way that the, the game has evolved, there would have been other... Like, the, the amount of money that you win for winning the majors, the amount of prestige that you win for winning the majors, I don't know if, um, if there was more money on offer for things like the end of season. I remember there was a, a gold racket that um, Ivan Lendl used to win every year, which was actually worth as much, if not more, than, so therefore he put all his attention into that. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know if um, or what caused those three great players to rise up simultaneously or fairly close to being simultaneous. Um, but Alcaraz was involved in a five-setter in the round of 16, a five-setter in the quarterfinal, a five-setter in the semi, and then a handy four-setter in the finals against um, against Rude, uh, which means that like he didn't have it easy, uh, yeah. you know. And I think was it was the second longest match in U.S. Open history was one of them was either the quarterfinal. I think it was the quarterfinal against Sinner. Yeah, it was the quarterfinal. That was the one that went on until like three a.m. in the morning. It was yeah. absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> so he didn't win it easy, um, and it is exactly the type of thing that is going to. Uh, make everybody stand up and, and take notice and again he's not 20 until next May mm. so I don't know exactly when the, US, the French Open is next year but he has a, certainly he's the youngest I think the youngest world number one um, it's basically the birth of a superstar has happened mm. on Amazon Prime this week 
So, uh, Youngest you, U.S. Open winner since Pete Sampras, I think, as well. Okay. He had an okay career? Yeah, in 1990. So, And he played Agassi in that final. So. Yeah, it's, uh, that was an era, right, where those guys were, you would have said, very talented. I don't know what the difference between them and the Djokovic Nadal and the hoovering up of uh, all of the, the majors is. Um, I think it's just the complete dominance of them. Like, you, there wasn't anyone else in the conversation for so long, and it's so rare you get that in a sport where you you might have one team or one player who's particularly good but to have three competing in a single person sport at the same time and just no one being able to get near them it's like it is insane I, I don't know if we will ever see the likes of it again I hope we do but it does feel like a once in a lifetime thing um, yeah unless, unless uh, Rude and Akaraz and uh, Sinner another, or, <laughs> Sinner or TFO we'll see yeah. um, he's he's a bit older he's 24 he's now lad uh, oh, making the ancient. breakthrough at this yeah uh, right if you've got a view on anything that we've covered or haven't covered then we'd love to hear from you this morning 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number we should give a shout out here to John Duggan and Virtual Insanity for the insane run that he is on at the moment he tipped his headline tip this week with Shane Larry for the golf and for those of you who were uh, on his headline tip he also mentioned Patrick Reed. I think um, so uh, I think his profits up it was 22% heading into this one so we'll get the exact figures for you later on in the week but he is a man on fire as it stands for there was there anybody else that we wanted to put in the in the green was there anything else I think we covered it all there uh, I thought Kieran McGeehan had another good run at the weekend the the uh, Fifth Avenue Mile was mm-hmm. the um, the race. We, we talked a little bit about this with Eamon Coughlin on the show last week in advance of the Griffith Avenue Mile, which is next week. And now it turns out they shut down Fifth Avenue for that. Uh, she was beaten by Laura Muir in that. So um, Muir obviously turning the tables on her from the um, Diamond I was going to say, I feel week. like that's the classic rivalry between the two of them. They seem to go toe-to-toe quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's brewing into something nicely mm. and coming up to the boil. So hopefully there'll be plenty of them in the Diamond Leagues next year and they hopefully won't make loads of money from it. <laughs> that is this week's edition of the Gillette Labs Performance Rankings. OTBAS Performance Rankings with Gillette. Yeah, if you want to get involved in the performance rankings, uh, the best place to do it is on our Instagram feed. Make sure you subscribe to, uh, uh, it's just um, uh, add off the ball. And uh, on Sunday nights, you can tell us what you think should be in the red, in the amber, or indeed in the green. And if you've got any amber suggestions, I, you're a bit weird, but we would definitely welcome them because we're, as you can see, struggling to find good stuff to put in the meh middle part. OTB. 11 minutes past 8 this morning. You're very welcome back to OTBAM. If you've uh, got anything you want to talk to us about, you can text the show 087-9180-180 or you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream. Now, a reminder, Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Each week, we're giving one lucky viewer a €100 voucher to spend on some Braeburn Coffee goodness at an Apple Green store near you. To enter, check out Add Off The Ball on Twitter, like and retweet our Braeburn competition post and you'll be in the draw. Braeburn Coffee never compromise on quality or taste to give you the best on-the-go coffee experience on the road. And it's available at Apple Green today. Now, to the football. Martin Lipton is with us this morning. Martin, good morning to you. How are you getting on? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, very good. You uh, had a, a weekend off, or, or at least not a match-going weekend as a result of um, there being no I'm matches. Even the kids' football was off, which is a bit of a blow. It was supposed to be the start of the season, but I understand why. Um, sometimes you're going to be damned if you do and damned if you don't, so maybe you better be damned for doing. Um What's going to happen next? That's the the main thing here is that this season has already been, and we've been talking about this 
basically since the start of the uh, the transfer windows, like you're going to need a big squad to manage playing midweek weekend, midweek weekend, all the way up to the World Cup, and then immediately after the World Cup, when your players are all fairly tired after uh, whatever happens, they're going to be playing midweek weekend, midweek weekend, all the way until the end of May. Is there just going to be an extra week to the season? Is that the only way to get around this? They're not allowed to under the contract. It will cost them too much money. It's a fixed date that it has to end. Uh, I suspect that they'll squeeze them in. The obvious time to do that would be the middle of January, second and third, or third and fourth weeks of January, when uh, the only things that are scheduled at the moment are the Carabao Cup semi-finals. So you could easily, I think, get most of the games at least, if not all, if not all of them, or probably not all of them, because there'll be teams in the Carabao Cup games. But most of those games can be played in that window. But you're still likely, I suspect, to have uh, some of the teams in Europe not getting the games played, um, particularly as you know one of the games that was cancelled um, at the weekend was uh, City versus Spurs. Now, given City have been virtually every final, which seems to be the League Cup forever, except last season, the chances of neither Spurs nor City being in this year's semi-final are pretty low, you would think. I mean, one of them will be there. So that means that match has to be squeezed. But... The Premier League would really, really want Spurs and City to be, if they both qualify in Europe, to be drawn in the same midweek, as it were, in the last 16 round, because that would at least create a space in the other last 16 week to play the match, even if it would mean going up against the UEFA rules and they could be fined for doing it, but they have to get the matches played. It's it's going to be tight. It's going to be even tighter if there's matches called off uh, next weekend and I think it's, it's likely that Chelsea-Liverpool might be called off just because of it being due to be played in London on Sunday when there's going to be a huge policing operation in the middle of London. So it has some of the knock-on impact seems to have been around the uh, the policing for sure and, and that does seem like it might roll onto it. Were there any other reasons given or certainly spoken about around the decision to make the postponements? I think a bit of it was football is the national game uh, and it has to show a bit of leadership here. Uh, also, remember, look, you know, the Queen's the patron of the FA. Her grandson is the president of the FA. Sometimes you've got to be seen to do and you've got to do the right thing. I mean, look, I'm, I, I think there was a slight overreaction, in fact, significant overreaction in terms of the youth football. But not on the professional football. I perfectly understand the decision. I mean, I'm not saying I think it was a brilliant decision, but I understand the rationale behind it. And I also think that a bit of it was a bit of fear. If football had gone ahead, it would have been, oh, typical football. They've, they've gone so woke, they'll cancel, they'll have cancel games and they'll do all these minute silences and, you know, protest for Black Lives Matter, but they won't do anything for the Queen. Like, you can't win, can you? So just called it off. Uh I think it would be a mistake to repeat next weekend the grassroots ban. Um, and I don't think that will happen, but we'll find out. But I, 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 and I think the majority of matches will be played. Uh, other than that, there was a, there are issues, as we saw, one at Hearts, one in, not in the UK, obviously in, at, in Dublin at Shamrock. But there was a fear, a fear that maybe one or two fans might, you know, besmirch a silence. I don't think that would have been a good look for football. I don't think that was a significant factor, but it was a a contributory factor. So it was a a melange of different things that went into the decision. Um, We are seeing that uh, away fans have been banned from the Rangers-Napoli game in the Champions League, which seems slightly to have an impact on the integrity of the fixture. Um, You know, fans seem to be important, certainly 
that's one of the takeaways I would have taken from the whole COVID period. It was like, well, fans seem to matter. They seem to have, be able to, you know, teams play better or worse depending on um, the impact of the fans. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's nothing and maybe that's just the way you have to deal with these situations. But are there any concerns about that? Uh, I think you, you would argue that in the round. Yes, if it was at every game, certainly. I, I think it's a, the UEFA decision obviously is one with specifics to Glasgow um, on, uh, on Tuesday stroke Wednesday game couldn't be played Tuesday for policing reasons. If there's no away fans, there's less need for as many police for obvious reasons. The quid pro quo is that Rangers, who are probably looking forward to going to Naples, a lot of fans, it's a beautiful part of the world, despite the odd occasional issue, it's fair to say, in the city, uh, they can't go as well. So for the game, which is the fifth match, which is arguably potentially a more decisive match, fifth match in the um, in the competition, they, there'll be no away fans in, in Naples. So it's unfortunate, but it's understandable, I think. Do you expect all the, the European games otherwise to go ahead? So basically, next weekend, we'll know in advance what's going to happen. It looks like, from what you're saying, that there might be that Chelsea-Liverpool fixture might be in danger. But other than that, we would expect everything else to go ahead? I wouldn't say everything else, because if you call off one game in London because of policing, can you then play Brentford v Arsenal on Sunday? Can you play Spurs v Leicester on on Saturday. I mean, it all depends. I think the games outside London will go ahead. Uh, the Premier League games within London is a different issue. It will be discussed. I'm sure they'll make an early decision. They can't let it um, go on until the end of the week. They've got to decide probably by tomorrow, maybe even as early as today. I'm sure there'll be meetings within the Premier League, with the FA, with the, with the Met, to make a determination. And I, But I, I anticipate a swift de- decision. The European games this week are going ahead. Uh, and rightly so, uh, you know, National League resumes tonight. Um, There's, you know, non-league football, which is also off at the weekend. So I think um, matches will be played. I think the fact that all the other sports went ahead makes it easier for football to go ahead now, bizarrely. Um, what is interesting, I think, is that I, I did look it up. So in 1952, which was a bit before I was born, but obviously way before you lot were all born, um, football went ahead three days after King George VI died uh, and nothing else did. This time, it's the other way around. It's a strange world. <laughs> they weren't looking at the historical track records. Has there been much feeling on the ground, like how clubs are actually feeling about this? Because like you say, there's a very small window in January where maybe these matches can get replayed. And if you are a City or a Spurs, presumably, and especially if, say, Spurs game at the weekend doesn't go ahead again, presumably they're not all that happy about that factor. Is it just more, there's nothing they really can say at this stage? It was a decision of the clubs on, mm. on Friday. So it's their decision. They're cool. Uh, I don't think they're particularly happy about it. They just, they just felt it was the right thing to do. Um, and look, last season we had a weekend when only one match was played because of COVID. Arsenal, Leeds Arsenal was the only match played that weekend because there was a, a COVID wave that went round. They squeezed the matches in. Uh, they're used to doing that. You know, in the past it's been bad weather. Uh, now we don't have too much bad weather that affects grounds because of the you know, conditions of the pitches. And the only issue is if actually the, the surrounds of the grounds are unsafe, the pitches itself are all um, you know, properly covered and undersoil heated. So fewer matches get postponed. Um, there's always a bit of wriggle room. They'll always find a way. And if it means playing games, at some point you might have one, two clubs having to play three games in a, seat in a week. Well, Unfortunate, but so be it. I think that would be the view. But normally, there's there's a way of squeezing games in. There are, I remember, three official catch-up weekends in March, April and May 
which are set aside to play the matches that are postponed. Um, so often there's that opportunity, and if not, they'll have to find another date. Uh, so uh, the, there's a contingency plan in place, and, and um, I'm sure it'll be, it'll be grand, but they definitely need next weekend's games largely to go ahead so that it's not two weekends are catching up on. Can I just ask you about um, some of the actual football then? Uh, I'd say Chelsea and the new Chelsea manager is pretty happy about the fact that he didn't have to play a game last weekend and he gets an extra few days of not just recovery with the team, but proper training sessions to try and instill some specific plans on a group of players who are absolutely world-class and who are desperate for success. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Graham Potter, it's, you'd much rather have had four days before your first game than one. Uh, no surprise there. I also think there's always a bit of new manager bounce, and I'm sure they'll turn up and, and play uh, because they're all trying to impress the new manager. That happens at, at every club. Um, but he has got to impose his ideas... I don't think it's necessarily going to be as difficult as it might be at another club. It's not as if he's gone into a club that's in crisis, which is often the way. He's gone into a club that's had a couple of poor results. He's also got some incredibly talented players. What we know from Potter from his time at Osterstons and at Swansea and at Brighton is that he wants a particular way of playing. He is very determined to, to, to stick with his principles. You have to buy into it. Them giving him a five-year contract is a statement to say, come on, it's, this is the manager you get along with him or you don't get along at all because we won't have you here anymore. So it's, that was the, the message that they wanted to put out. Um, but it will take time. You can't expect him to to be Harry Potter and wave a magic wand. It doesn't work like that. Uh, he's Graham Potter and he's a manager and he's going to spend time making his players understand what he's looking for. The knee-jerk reaction to the sacking before everything else had happened was, oh, it's uh, new owners, but same old Chelsea. <clears throat> yeah, I think I can understand that. I mean, I always feel new manager normally, sorry, new owners normally means new manager quite quickly at any club because they want their own man. Uh, and and Tuchel wasn't their own man. I think it's fair to say he can be um, difficult. Uh, and his track record at other clubs shows that. You know, he fell out at Dortmund and he fell out with all the players at PSG and it looks as though he's fallen out with some of the players at, uh, at Chelsea. It's in his nature. He's a, a somewhat cantankerous uh, chap at times it would appear but obviously a, a top manager there's no doubt about that um, and they it looked as though they were trying to get on and they found him impossible to work with um, because he's he's a quite idiosyncratic fellow it would appear um, and that doesn't all go well when you start losing at Southampton and Leeds and squeeze past West Ham the, the, the statement they would have gone if they'd whatever happens in uh, in Zagreb is is what they always say. I think if they won five 0 it would be difficult to sack him. Yeah, uh, you know, but it means they were waiting for the next defeat to sack him. So it was a, it, it the ice was thinner and thinner and thinner to the point where it was gossamer thin and it was going to crack. And you know, and Zagreb gave them the opportunity to actually say, well, let's let's pull the plug now. Um, notwithstanding that, right. And that definitely seems to be the case. And they obviously were able to do the deal with Potter and with Brighton really quickly. So they, they knew about the buyout clause. They knew what they needed to do. They knew the case that they would need to make to him. Uh, why did they sign Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang if they knew that they were getting rid of the manager who he wanted to play for? This is the, the greatest question of all, actually, because they gave him Aubameyang and they also gave him Zakaria. Uh, and you would have imagined that the reason that Aubameyang went to Chelsea was to play for Tuchel. And the reason that 
and they gave him what they wanted, you know, what he wanted. He demanded more players in the wake of the Southampton defeat. He was very angry at the quality of players that, that he felt he'd been left with because he didn't think the right issues had been addressed. Well, he's the one who got rid of Werner and um, Lukaku. So, uh, be, on your own head, be it. I think they probably just had enough of him. Um, and they thought, well, we have to have a striker because we haven't got a striker in the club. A proper, you know, nine or somebody yeah. can play centre forward. He's available. We'll, we'll get him anyhow. And also, maybe a bit of it was, well, if we've still got two quarters manager when we do the deal, it's more likely that he'll agree to come, which means we've got him. So there's nothing he can do about it if we get rid of the manager. I don't know, but you might think that might be a slightly Machiavellian approach to it. But yeah, it's football, isn't it? So anything goes. Okay. Uh, I, I, what is your level of expectation for what's going to happen at Chelsea now? Because it, it does, again, on the face of it, it felt like same old Chelsea. And now it doesn't feel like that at all. As you say, they've given him a five-year deal. And they seem to be putting a structure in place. Potter, the the rumour was, will be involved in the selection of whoever the technical director is going to be, which is a very American thing where, you know, you put your head coach and your technical director, general manager together and you, you view them as a duo and they share responsibility and, and credit and therefore um, take blame collectively. So if that is what's going to happen, you wouldn't be terribly surprised. It kind of apes what's going on with their baseball team. Um, so he could well be here for the long haul. Well, I... The one thing that might alter that, actually, is a vacancy at Wembley. Because I think that Potter was, you know, very much the lead candidate to replace uh, Gareth Southgate as as England manager whenever Southgate leaves. And now he's got, will have had the experience of of running a big club, and for him, I hope, successfully, even more the case that they'd want him. But then again, the FA can't pay the sort of money that Chelsea pays. So it's quite an interesting scenario. And if England were to come calling, what would he do? Um, I suppose it depends when England come calling. If, if Southgate walks out after the World Cup, then Potter won't go. If Southgate walks out after the Euros in 2024, or even after the World Cup in 2026, then maybe more likely. Who knows? We'll see that in the in the fullness of of time. I suspect, I genuinely think that Potter is an outstandingly impressive manager i think he's proven that already on pretty limited resources and as long as the players are willing to buy into his ideas are going to go with him they will improve as a team i think he's excellent the one thing he lacked wherever particularly at brighton was a 20 goal a season striker if he'd had that they'd have been knocking on the door of the top four uh, they're a very good team look, look they, they beat arsenal last year they beat spurs they get got results they've already beaten um United this season, I think they beat City in the recent past. They're a very, they've got a, a draw at Liverpool last season when Liverpool were playing well. Uh, they're a very good team. And that comes down to the manager and his principles and his way of playing. There's no reason to, to suspect that he shouldn't be able to transplant that given a betting in period uh, at Chelsea and make Chelsea a, a really, really good team. I think they will be. Whether they might take a, uh, might take a too long this season... To impact, I don't know. We'll see that. Um, but he has got quality players, and that gives you, you know, he's got. If you just look at the squad, he's got a better quality of squad to start work with than anywhere he's been before. So if you've got a good coach with good players, you probably get a good team. And do we think they'll continue to spend as much as they have spent within, obviously, whatever restrictions come from financial fair play? Well, that is the thing. FFP or financial sustainability rules, as it now is, coming in from January for UEFA. 
I think there's going to be a, a move towards mod, uh, aping a version of the UEFA model in the Premier League as well. So they won't, they'll be restricted to percentile of revenue. So they won't be able to spend quite as much um, in the in the short term unless they grow the revenue. They only do that by building the, sta- the, st- the stadium bigger and they won't, that take three or four years. So I think they'll still spend. It's Chelsea. Uh, I think this was a one-off taking advantage of the situation spend to allow them to spend as much as they had. You know, it's a record sum by, by an English club, by any club, I think, virtually apart from uh, when you know, PSG play, pay ridiculous sums for, for Neymar and players like that. Um, so they'll still spend their Chelsea. It's what they do. They can't, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't run, you stand still. Don't if you stand if you stand still, you fall backwards in football. We know that, unfortunately. It's got to be continual evolution, if if not revolution. And they'll have to spend, but they have to pay players that work for Potter. That means players who are willing to press, who are willing to put that effort in, who want to play that system. The one thing that helps him, I think, in the short term, is he's got at least one. We think uh, dressing room disciple in in Cucurella who played for him uh, last season. Um. Can they cancel the uh, Billy Gilmore deal and get him back? Is there any uh, banking rules like, oh, sorry, that check bounced. We, we're going to take that guy back. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, Gilmore. I can't, work, I can't work out whether Gilmore is a really good player who's gone backwards or was overhyped. And I don't know. I'm not being critical. I haven't seen enough of him. But at Norwich last year, he didn't exactly pull up too many trees, did he? Uh, Tuchel obviously didn't fancy him. But Potter clearly did because he's taken him in at right and maybe just to give himself an extra option in terms of the, the way they play. But at the moment, that boat's gone. That's floated out to sea and can't come back, at least until there's a, a transfer window. Um, how do you think Spurs have done so far this season? They haven't played well, have they? And yet they haven't lost. Very strange. Uh, it's not like Spurs at all. I thought they played quite well against Fulham. They were measured, actually, against Marseille, weren't they, in midweek? They didn't play particularly well. You never thought they were going to lose the game. You thought they'd probably find a way and... Lo and behold, they did. The first real test would have been on Saturday, and that's now delayed, you know, for months. So the next, that the, it'd be a tough game tomorrow night in in Lisbon. And Sporting smashed Frankfurt, didn't they? Away three 0 last week, so they're in in decent nick. Then they've got, I suppose, they've got Leicester at the weekend, um, and then it's the international break, and they come back and play Arsenal. So we still don't quite know what they are. What we do know is that they've organised, they run hard, they don't concede too many goals, and they've always got a goal in them because they've got four, even though Son hasn't scored yet, but he will score, we know that. They've got four who can score. It gives them an advantage, doesn't it? Um, and also, I think, surprise for me has been, Emerson has been better this season than before. Uh, he still doesn't thrill you on the ball, but he has been involved in creating goals. And he doesn't make too many mistakes at the back. So they've had a bit more solidity about them this year. They're they're not the stereotypical European team at the moment who are um heavy metal football. They're they're definitely a variation of the uh Conte Chelsea team with maybe a, a different collection of talented players. So it, it's gonna be interesting to see how that style competes over the course of the season against Pep and against whatever else the, the challenge is gonna be. But you wouldn't be terribly surprised if they were able to actually sustain this and, and get better, grow into the season, that they're doing it now from a base where it's incredibly solid, incredibly difficult to beat. And then as players come into form, as players develop understanding of what their requirements are, 
and those partnerships built. Like, I guess I'm right about saying here that Spurs are in a really great situation at the moment, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, there's a virtuous circle off the pitch there because of the, the money that's coming in. You know, £6 million per every home game. Uh, they're in a position where, you know, they are comfortably well-placed to deal with all the the financial vicissitudes that have, that have come across across football and the world, which is really good for them. They've got a very strong structure. They've got goals up top. I mean, you know, if Kane gets injured, can you rely on Richarlison to score? Well, what you saw last week, probably yes. You know, he's, it, they wouldn't, it wouldn't be as devastating now if Kane lost a month than it has been at any point in the last six years, which is a testament to the way that um, uh, Pavitici and Conte have gone about the uh, this rebuilding. You know, uh, Bentancourt... Uh, has been excellent. We haven't really seen Basuma yet, but we know that there's a player there. Uh, Kudaseski's been excellent since he came in January. Richarlison looks to have really made himself popular with the fans. You can see that. They're a decent nick, aren't they? They're, uh, whether they're good enough to challenge for the title, I'm less sure. Uh, I still think City are going to prove to be far and away the best team because Holland's going to score 50 goals at this rate, if not more. Um, but with Liverpool being slightly off, I mean, the two teams that you could argue outside City that have impressed so far have been Spurs and Arsenal. Yeah, like, absolutely. And I, Arsenal had the, the blip against Manchester United. It'd be very interesting to see how they respond to that. And that was kind of, again, maybe Arteta won't mind having those extra few days before and maybe an extra week before the next Premier League game. The last thing, you, you talked about um, Liverpool being slightly off it. Can they get it back? Or is this going to be a down season for them where they have to try and recalibrate? Because... Um, Klopp was kind of talking about reinvention, and it's not you know he seems to he seems to have had just a little some kind of blip in terms of confidence about the style of play because they're not the same team they're not performing in the same way they're not doing the same habits um, that made them great and when that starts to happen it's difficult to get back mid season. Yeah, I, I the answer is, can they? Well, yes, they can. Will they? I don't know. Um, a lot of players are not playing well. Uh, the midfield, even with the late late arrival of, of Artur, look lightweight. It looks leggy. It looks struggling. Uh, they're missing Mane more than I think they, even they imagined they would. Uh, we haven't really seen enough of uh, Darwin Nunez yet to see what it, what sort of player he'll be. Uh, Salah, I don't, don't think Salah's played particularly well since the since Egypt failed to qualify for the World Cup, if maybe even since the African Nations final defeat, which was a month or so earlier than that. He's not been he's not been bad. He's just not been as great as he was before that. Uh, and at the back, um, Alexander-Arnold was having a, an awful run. And if they had another right back, I think they would be thinking of putting him in. The Liverpool fans, I know, are critical of Robertson. Uh, Van Dijk is looking mortal, uh, more than mortal, actually fail at times. Uh, and he really struggled once again uh, in Napoli. Uh, and they've been bailed out by the keeper quite a bit, um, more than they want to be. Something is is certainly more than a right. There's a real issue there and it needs to be addressed. And whether that will be something that can be done easily, I'm not too sure. Once players lose legs, lose confidence, lose belief, lose faith, reinstalling that isn't a matter of days. It's a matter of weeks and months sometimes. Yeah, very interesting to see exactly what happens there. Martin, good stuff. Thanks for joining us this morning. Cheers. Yes, bye-bye. That's uh, Martin Lipton there giving us some thoughts on what's likely to happen over the next while. A reminder, OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. It does feel like all the games, apart from the London games, are going to go ahead. And even then, you kind of think they'll be able to make some excuse for 
well, we're going to play these ones, but not that one. Possibly. I just saw the Daily Mail are now reporting that it may not go ahead because they don't have enough TV trucks, Guy, because they're covering so much for the royal funeral. So that's another one. Another one that may affect everything. I mean, surely they will find it somewhere. Ship some TV trucks over from... (laughs) Like, there's so much money involved in it, you would they think they'll be able to drive them out. through the, the tunnel, but then they'd get stuck in traffic in uh, Calais. I mean, <laughs> that'd be slightly ironic, wouldn't it? It would be slightly ironic. But yeah, I, I mean, I think it does make sense that a lot of the games will go ahead apart from the London ones, but uh, it's tight fitting it in. I still, I know Martin was saying there about the third and fourth week in January, but even then, if you have to play more than two games, it's going to be very, very difficult. Yeah. It's uh, 8.36 this morning and um, let's say hello and good morning to Carl Mulaney. Carl, how are you? Good morning, folks. How's it going? Good. We're getting hammered in the comments for not giving Shane Lowry enough love. Because oh, come on. I was too busy talking about... Um, <laughs> I mean, I think Patrick Reed and his performance over the weekend was one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen in sport. And then Shane Lowry swatted him away. <laughs> I did say that. Yeah. But you can't please all of the people yeah. any of the time, it yeah. turns out. Yeah. It was a great final day, wasn't it? It was uh, great entertainment and I suppose it got um, a lot of the limelight because there was no Premier League this weekend, but what a finish. Part of me wanted to see a playoff between McElroy and, and Lowry. Wouldn't that have been nice? Yeah, uh, it would. Just to see it. Just to see it. Just you to wouldn't see have it. talked about anything else this morning, I reckon, if that had happened. Yeah, um, and you know what? McElroy made a great effort on the last with that putt. I mean, it was uh, when he hit it, I thought it was two or three feet short. And yeah, me too. Trundled down there, trundled down there, and he said it, he thought it was in, three feet out, and it just uh, squirmed to the right a little bit on him. But what a great final day. I thought Lowry was pretty much flawless um, ok his drive on 17 wasn't brilliant but he recovered well and then the shot into 18 I mean that was just sublime into the centre of the green and got his birdie and got in front and I suppose he had that target that Ram had set after his 62 which was uh, great playing and then Larry just I suppose he could have had doubts in his head because he's come close in a couple of tournaments this year and hasn't quite got over the line but uh, yesterday he just uh, really raced home and got a deserved victory and you know he's a big time player he's uh, got his he never wins any shitty little small tournaments does he well he's won his major he's won his world golf championship this is the flagship event on the European or DP world tour at one of the iconic venues Um, he's played Ryder Cup he's won an Irish Open as an amateur so he's (laughs) he's pretty much done it all uh, at this stage and uh, yesterday points to the Ryder Cup qualification process as well so he leads the standings there and he'll be up the race to Dubai standings as well heading towards the close of the season so you're probably looking at a scenario where McElroy I think currently leads the standings in that as well so he could win both sides of the Atlantic um, which would be a, a super year for him and he spoke about trying to keep the momentum going from this year heading into next year as well he views that as fairly important so um, still a, a lot to play for this season but great to see Larry back in the winner's enclosure I think it's three years since his last win which is hard to believe too because he has been in the mix quite often uh, but he just he really is in the upper echelon of players right now what do we what rankings are today will they be do we know yeah he's going to he's going to he's going to shoot up and um, he's already shot up in the top 50 this year I think he's the biggest mover in the top 50 so you're probably looking at Larry to be on the brink of the top 15 uh, I would think after that win yesterday and that, that's where he should be uh, he's one of the most talented players in the world and if you look at his his game it's so natural and free-flowing when he's playing his best and he spoke himself of just trying to get out of his own way sometimes and just letting himself swing the club freely and, and put freely and, and kind of not overthink it because he's uh, such a naturally good player and you know, to win at a venue like Wentworth where there's been so many great champions over the years 
uh, will certainly go down as one of the, the top achievements of his career. Did and get the sense listening to him yesterday that like there was just a massive relief on his side that he had finally got there. I think after it was 2019 was the last yeah. big win he had. So it just seemed like he was absolutely really, he wasn't even happy yet. <laughs> he was just relieved that he'd got there and that he hadn't gotten his way again. Yeah, and it's such a stressful final day as well because the scoring was so good at Wentworth that you never really were sure that you were far enough ahead if you did get ahead. Now, he, he made his run at the right time and he got ahead right at the very end, but still when you have a player of McElroy's calibre uh, chasing you down, 17 felt like a big turning point where you felt like Larry not making birdie maybe opened the door a little bit for McElroy and McElroy just pushed his drive a little bit to the right. Now, he did make a decent recovery with the wood shot in under the trees, but didn't get up and down with his pitch. That put looked in as well uh, on 17. Had that gone in, then you're looking at a playoff with McElroy making birdie on the last. So that probably felt like the turning point in the back nine. Um, but for Larry, as you say, Kathleen, I mean, to, to get over the line is such a relief because he knows that he's one of the top players in the world. And when you're one of the top players in the world, top five finishes uh, don't really cut the mustard. OK, they're good for continuity and they illustrate that you're consistent in your game and that you're playing well but really uh, Lowry like McElroy deals in the currency of wins and major championships and big events like yesterday uh, so to get that on the CV is is quite an achievement what, like, Talk to us a little bit about that then in terms of like um, you know he, he again would have turned down a massive amount of money from uh, Live Golf so clearly he's, he's at this stage obviously fighting the money is important but it's He's at a stage now where it doesn't really matter. You know, he's, he's, yeah. he's going to be wealthy for the rest of his life, uh, no matter what he does. So, in terms of legacy, like, how important is it for him to start winning these types of events and over the rest of the season to continue to compete so that when the majors roll around, he's leaning back on the confidence of what he did at the Open and able to compete on a regular basis? Because he's been there, thereabouts, in like a few bad final rounds. A few mistakes in final rounds have kind of cost him recently. Well, the Masters this year, he was quite close, and on the PGA Tour, he's come close as well. I think you're right. I think he's playing definitely for his legacy now in terms of establishing himself as one of the leading players in Europe over the years. Winning a major championship instantly elevates you to a certain level that other players just can't quite get to that haven't won a major championship. So he's got that. He's now won the flagship event on the DP World Tour. Maybe are you looking at a stage where Lowry could conceivably try and win a FedEx Cup or a, a race to Dubai title, which would underline his consistency across a season? Uh, he's certainly in that sort of company, you would think, at this stage. And probably for Lowry, I mean, to become a multiple major champion uh, would be quite a, an achievable target now because he's been in the mix quite consistently in big events. And I think he views himself as very capable of mixing it with that sort of company. And he's the sort of player that... I won't say a carefree attitude, but certainly he looks very comfortable uh, when he's under pressure. I would think when you think of Board Rush and the home crowds and the pressure that was on him that day to deliver, and he did with such poise. Again, yesterday coming down the stretch, I mentioned that shot into 18, I think it was a five iron he hit right into the heart of the green, and that's a, a very difficult shot where the wind can swirl with the grandstands and the trees, and you've got the water front left and the pressure, obviously, of needing to make birdie to edge in front. So he's got all the attributes of uh, being a top player in the world and probably for him at this stage I would say achievable goals and, and realistic targets would be A to win another uh, major championship and then B to establish himself probably 
as one of the top 10 players in the world. Yeah, over a period of time, yeah. He did pick up $1.3 million. So, I mean, it's not nothing, you know. Obviously, <laughs> it does help. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of people were struck as well by his comments at the start of the week about the live golf players. Yeah, that's a, that is interesting, right? Because he said, people know I hate conflict. And that's true. Like, he definitely does not want to talk about politics at any point. And... You know, he would have taken criticism for playing in Saudi Arabia in the past, but was basically like, look, the European Tour have decided this and I'm a member of the European Tour. And so, and so, you know, you, you can um, take that or not. But this week he came out fighting and was like, hang on a second, I actually am going to be one of those ones who is supporting McElroy and has his back. And then I'm also lending my credibility um, to this. And then he produces some of the best golf of his life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think a lot of people were struck by his comments at the start of the week that he came out um, so defiant uh, in his comments. And sometimes that can put pressure on you as well to deliver, but he certainly did in terms of his, his golf this week. But it probably underlines as well his position within the European game right now that he's one of the top players and possibly one of the spokespeople for the European game. Obviously, McElroy has, has taken the charge on the other side of the Atlantic with his worldwide profile and over in Europe as well. And, and Lowry certainly is in that company uh, too. And well, that's it, isn't it? it isn't, isn't he now a future Ryder Cup captain? Isn't that what we're looking at? And that's what we're talking about. Like, yeah. You know, we, have, we had GMAC penciled in at some point. Oh, major winner, you know, uh, somebody who will mm, uh, be very... Uh, a, 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 presentable, acceptable to the Americans. What was your American accent and everything? Uh, but now it's like, like Shane Larry's absolutely going to be a Ryder Cup captain at some point. Yeah, I think so. And I think he, he will want to establish himself there as a member of the team consistently over the next number of years and a leader, uh, really. And, you know, he, he, he does thrive in that team environment. And he spoke of how much he enjoyed his previous experience in the Ryder Cup, even though Europe at the moment don't look terribly strong. Uh, but Larry with his position in the game now is certainly one of the stronger players on the European side when you think of Larry McElroy, Matt Fitzpatrick as a US Open champion are going to be the, the leading contenders for Europe and, and flying the flag in Italy next year and I suppose it's down the line <laughs> but Larry certainly would be in contention to be a Ryder Cup captain uh, at some point now you would think given his standing in the, in the game in Europe and indeed uh, worldwide as well. Uh, the world rankings had him at 19 now that was on September 11th uh, so that was I don't know if that's before or after the tournament yesterday um, at uh, week 37 so we'll uh yeah but I think it's it's a very realistic goal for him and I think he would view himself as definitely a top 20 player and I think most people out there on the circuit would regard him talent wise as definitely uh, within the top 20 players in the world and I suppose to stay there, you do need to be registering wins every season and you need to be contending. He has been contending, just hasn't got over the line. But from yesterday, that's going to give him a huge boost in confidence. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's Shane Lowry. If he can keep this form and retain his form heading into next season, he'd be a very, very uh, keen man to watch for the major championships again because uh, he's certainly trending in the direction of becoming a multi multiple major champion at some point. Um, I know the golf season it felt like it finished officially a couple of weeks ago and then this happened and then obviously you're talking about the uh, road to Dubai. There's loads of massive tournaments still left to go. Yeah, absolutely. And the race to Dubai now will take centre stage and I think the Alfred Dunhill Links tournament is coming up. I think McElroy's going to play in that as well. And I suppose it's Europe's turn now to take a little bit of the limelight heading into the 
closed season but then you will have a little bit of a break and then obviously the turn of the year and everything like that and then it ramps back up again in February and March and into the Masters again but I suppose for, for players of McElroy and, and Lowry's calibre they are always trying to build up towards those major championships and even though the season isn't over yet they will have an, an eye already on their winter plans and trying to prime themselves to peak at Augusta uh, next April and wouldn't it be great to see one of them Slip on the green jacket. Absolutely. <laughs> what else uh, happens or is happening? Well, Porrick Harrington has another Champions Tour title. Uh, he's celebrating again. He claimed victory at the Ascension Charity Classic overnight. He bogey two of the final three holes, but he still finished a shot clear of the field on 14 under par. He actually tried to ring Shane Lowry uh, to talk to him. It was half past three uh, in London, Harrington said, and Lowry didn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> so he was either gone to bed or he was otherwise engaged. Uh, but he was, uh, Harrington thought that he'd still be up uh, celebrating his win, but that was how I it played I did see out. Larry did post a photo about like 40 minutes ago of him looking a bit worse for wear. I think he said he had to be up early this morning for something anyway, so yeah. I don't know how late the celebrations went on. Yeah, but Harrington's stitching together a great season on the uh, Champions Tour. He's been really consistent. And uh, his 14 under par total yesterday, someone finished a shot clear of the field. Uh, Waii Yang finished in second. On the LPGA Tour, Leona Maguire finished on six under par. That was good enough for a 24th place finish at the Kroger Queen City Championship. She was 16 shots adrift of the winner, Ali Ewing of America. Stephanie Meadow uh, finished on one over par. Carlos Alcaraz is the youngest male winner of a Grand Slam since Rafa Nadal in 2005. That's after lifting the US Open title last night. He beat Norway's Casper Rudd in the final, winning in four sets. 19 years of age, Carlos Alcaraz is also now top of the world rankings. Uh, in football last night, Shamrock Rovers, four points clear now at the top of the SS Electricity League Premier Division. Neil Farouge has scored twice. The Hoops beat Finn Harps 5-1 at Tallis Stadium. Harps are rooted to the bottom of the table. They're one point behind at UCD. Uh, it's hoped that elite women's football will continue in Galway despite Galway WFC's decision to withdraw from the Women's National League from next season. The Triswin have confirmed they'll not take part in next year's campaign and that this will be their final season. They posted their thanks to players, staff and fans on social media last night as they bring an end to their association with the league in their current incarnation but it's understood that there is interest in forming a new team ahead of the 2023 season. Uh, Thomas Tuchel says he's dev Devastated his time as Chelsea manager has come to an end. The German was sacked last week. Graham Potter appointed as his successor. In a statement on social media, Tuchel said Chelsea was a club where he felt at home personally and professionally. In Rugby Ireland's men's sevens, head coach James Topping says their bronze medal finish at the World Cup is a great boost to the sport. Then 19 points to 14 win over Australia ensured a third-place finish after they lost to New Zealand in the semi-finals. Ireland also enjoyed wins over Portugal, England and South Africa at the tournament in Cape Town. On the county final front, uh, Bally Gunners celebrating their ninth Waterford senior hurling title in a row. They had too much for Mount Sion in the decider yesterday, winning by 2-11 to 8 points. Peter Hogan and Porik Mahoney hitting the back of the net there for the All-Ireland Club champions. And finally, news of motorsport Max Verstappen edging closer to a second consecutive Formula 1 world title. That's after winning the Italian Grand Prix. He came back from seventh on the grid to finish clear of Ferrari's Charles Leclerc to secure his 11th victory of the season and his fifth in a row. 13 is the record, I think, um, Shane was saying last week that he's chasing. So it's really him against the records now as opposed to him against the field. Um, all right, good stuff, Carl. Thanks very much for that. Thanks, folks. It's Carl Mulaney with us there this morning at 8.51. A reminder, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're turning our attention to the NFL season, which is uh, finally up and running after uh, what seems like an interminable off-season. Mike Carlson is back with us. Mike, good morning to you. How are you getting on? 
Well, can you keep the noise down a little bit? It's kind of bright this morning. Uh, late nights? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I'd gotten out of the habit of <laughs> staying up, staying up to watch the late game, but, uh, but now it's back and, um, uh, yeah, it was it was a good it was a good opening week, like as usual. It's national jump to conclusions week. So, um, well, let's do that then. Buff- let's, Buffalo let's... and Buffalo and Kansas City will meet in the Super Bowl, even though they're both in the AFC. <laughs> That's the the first conclusion. Also, just before we start, I'd like to point out that um, Thomas Tuchel. Um, there is a job open at Nebraska. Oh yeah, <laughs> who, who fired their coach on on Sunday after they lost to Georgia Southern? So the trip to Dublin did Scott Frost no good at all. Well, it's certainly uh, the Nebraska fans in the aftermath were definitely like, "This guy's got to go," and uh, yeah. he didn't last. So I don't know if that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing in future. It's going to make everybody a little bit anxious about the trip to <laughs> Dublin in future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think they had such a good time. They won't matter. They won't care. Well, um, the free booze always helps with that. Uh, Absolutely. It turns out. Um, so a couple of jumping to conclusions. Um, the Green Bay Packers is not very good anymore. You know, we, we can maybe, maybe Aaron Rodgers is washed up. Uh, Dallas are cursed. Their QB <laughs> is out. He's um, <clears throat> hurt his hand. And uh, Jerry Jones immediately comes out and says, right, he's injured and he's going to miss who knows how long. And anyway, do you really come back? after a hand injury as a QB in the same season and, and perform really well. Uh, Tom Brady's still good at football. Bill Belichick, what the hell's going on there? And um, as you said, the the two best teams seem to be the two best teams. So um, yeah. did I miss anything significant? Uh, not really, except maybe the kickers. Uh, kickers were ab- either very, very good or very, very bad, um, as, as you um as you might have noticed. The, the uh, rookie kicker, Cade York, um, for, uh, for Cleveland, won won the game with a 58 yard kick uh, against um, um, against Carolina in the Baker Mayfield Bowl. bowl the Baker Bowl, um, you know, they got a couple penalties with Jeremy Br- Jacoby Brissett, their quarterback, who put him into field goal range basically, and he kicked that um, after Baker had kind of come alive in the fourth quarter and, and uh, set them on. And then you had um, the kicking hero of last season. Um, McPherson from Cincinnati miss an extra point that would have won the game in in regulation, and then miss a field goal that would have won it in overtime. Um, they had their long snapper, the guy whose job is to simply snap the ball back on kicks, uh, was injured. They had to use a tight end as the long snapper, and and you could see the way that the the slightly slower, higher snap affected both kicks. The the one at the end of regulation was blocked by Minka Fitzpatrick um, and Mike Tomlin strutting up the sideline. The coach saying, "Boy, can I coach?" You yeah. Know? Um, and uh, but otherwise, yeah, I think I think you've hit most of the uh, most of the high notes. And we, we've we've talked about Bill Belichick with you over the years. Um, what is happening with the Patriots at the moment? Because uh, we we talked briefly about this on on the show last week. I think where they don't have an official offensive coordinator, and that's okay because it's all about money. But actually, I mean, is it is it actually all just about money when you? Pick no, a- I, I I don't think so. I think it's all about trust um, and. Uh, as Bill gets older, I think the, you know, he's always brought along lots of young coaches and that's, you know, we're, that seems to be working on their defense. Their defense had a pretty good game against what's, you know, Miami is supposed to be that incredibly high powered uh, offense now with Tyreek Hill. But um, offensively, they were, they didn't know what they were doing. And when they did know what they were doing, they were doing the wrong things. It was, it was very hard to watch because, um, 
Last year, they they performed very well with a rookie quarterback. And this year, it looked like Mac Jones was not getting much of a chance to do anything. Their receivers were never open, which means, you know, either you, you don't have great receivers like some teams do, or you're not able to scheme them open. They when they needed to be in a hurry and occasionally when they went hurry up, they, they performed a little bit better, but um, when they needed to be in a hurry, they weren't, they were still running the ball on first down and second down and then throwing, you know, on third down when everyone expects it, their line looked very slow. Their receivers, they looked like they wanted to play Dan Campbell, Detroit lions, smash mouth football, but they don't have a, they don't have a Deandre Swift to carry the ball. And I, I think, I said earlier, I do a column on Patreon. I said much earlier in the, in the, over the summer, I didn't understand why he didn't bring in a young quarterbacks coach. Say he didn't have to be the offensive coordinator, but, but a guy just to work with Mac Jones, just to make suggestions as to what we're doing. You know, when Buffalo lost Brian Dable to the Giants, uh, they promoted Ken Dorsey. They they brought in Joe Brady, who had been the coordinator in Carolina and, and before that at LSU. A guy like that, I thought, would help some new. Just bring some new blood in, and instead, you've got Patricia and Joe Judge running the offense, both of whom are not just failed head coaches, but failed badly head coaches. You know, who um, it was interesting that the Giants won, and their special teams were great. And Joe, their special teams were lousy when Joe Judge, who by by um, occupation is a special teams coach, was there. So, yeah. I, if I were an offensive player, I'm not sure how much faith I would have in those guys to create a, a good offense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, there have been seasons where the uh, Patriots start slow and, and Belichick's giant True. brain figures things out. So you, this is overreaction Monday after the first weekend of the season. So that's okay. Oh, they're, they're, absolutely. Yeah. The Giants are going to go 17 and 0. And the Patriots 1 in 16. Um, what about Green Bay, though? Because, um, you know, Green Bay didn't did. Have- <laughs> They yeah. they gave away their, their best offensive weapon. They refused point blank to ever draft a receiver in the first round. They've got a very temperamental and genius uh, quarterback, and they got absolutely annihilated by a divisional rival yesterday. Well, you know, while um, he he's certainly not temperamental while he's drinking ayahuasca tea, um, he's come become one with the universe, but. It was the very first play of the game for Green Bay that told you what was going to happen. They ran one of the rookie receivers, Christian Watson, deep. He got open, just as he had done in one of the preseason games I saw. Rodgers put the ball right over his shoulder on the money, and he dropped it. Um, they would have been tied had he caught it and gone in for the touchdown. And the expression on Rodgers' face basically told you all that you needed to do. No, Now, they didn't have either of their starting tackles play. So you could see that part of the game plan was for him to to kind of get rid of the ball early or move in the pocket and then get rid of the ball, but none of that none of that was working. He also didn't have Alan Lazard who's supposed to probably be his quote unquote favorite receiver this year. Uh so uh, you know, I'm willing to cut them a little bit of slack there, but you notice the difference in the game really was Justin Jefferson. This is what having a really true number 1 receiver does for you. Jefferson had nine catches for 180 something yards and on both of his touchdowns on on uh, the play that set up a field goal he was not only you know open he was wide open and you know how how you can let a weapon like that stay open i have no idea with 
Green Bay's defense. But, you know, you had a guy like Jefferson making plays. You know, A.J. Brown, who went to the Eagles, had a huge <coughs> game for Philadelphia. Devontae Adams, Oakland, uh, the Raiders lost. Uh, and Adam, Adams had a pretty good game, but, uh, you know, n- nothing to make um, to make Green Bay kind of weep over that loss until they look at their own receivers. Um, they'll be fine, though, because they have, uh, uh, you know, the ayahuasca are not influenced uh, QB, who is still like, I, I guess uh, we're not saying that there's a, an end point in sight for Aaron Rodgers just yet. No, I mean, you know, he still he still looks so good throwing the ball. Um they just have to tie. They brought Tom Clements back, who's an old uh, CFL quarterback who was a quarterback's coach in Green Bay and offensive coordinator for a while. And uh, you saw the two of them at one point just sitting on the, on, on the sidelines, uh, you know, and Rogers kind of in disgust, uh, um, complaining to him, I guess, or, or whatever. I think when they get their tackles back, they'll be better. Um, okay. They can run the ball, which is a good thing for them, but but they do need to sort that out. What about the uh, new Kirk Cousins and the fact that they now have a head coach who wants Kirk Cousins to throw the ball and be influential <laughs> as opposed to just trying to bore you to death by uh, defence? Yeah, <laughs> and their defense was surprisingly good too. Again, of course, again um, without their tackles, Green Bay. But yeah, I mean, it was brilliant to see. Like I said, Jefferson was open, wide open all the time, and and he was being schemed open. And Green Bay was kind of you could, you could watch as he moved across the formation. The the corner on his side was letting him go because it wasn't his job. The safety was sort of letting him go because it probably wasn't his job. And nobody just stopped to look and think, well, that's Justin Jefferson. Maybe somebody ought to cover him. But they, they tore, they picked and tore the Green Bay defense apart when they needed to. So yeah, I, I thought that was a really good sign. Um, and you know, maybe some of the Kirk Cousins doubters will have a tough a tough time this season. Um, it it's it, it's something that I, I had. I actually picked the Vikings as a dark horse this week, um, and uh, in a week that you know a lot of upsets. My my straight up picks were not doing that well. Um, I, that was the one that actually pleased me. Although you know it's it's um, it's always hard to accept a uh, sea change in a in a division like that, and I doubt it will be that in the end. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've got to talk about two other quarterbacks. Uh, sure. It seems like officially Tom Brady's final season. That was all the stories coming out yesterday that uh, he'd actually gone on holidays with the family for a 10 day break in the middle of August, which is the first time he's ever been able to do that, which was, you know, his um, sop to his wife, who famously was like, no, hang on, you're giving no football. And he's like, no, I'm actually going to go back and play one more season. So we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. But that was the gossip anyway from the New York Post pre-match. Yeah. And just Yeah, Giselle's the most important person in the NFL right now. And it looks like this is going to be his last season, but it started okay. You know, um, they they beat the Cowboys nineteen three. Um, how how did Brady play, and, and what do we expect from him this season? Um, I think what we expect is is probably another Super Bowl run, and he made he kind of made the most of what they had. Leonard Fournette, his running back, had had a really good game and they ran him a lot against Dallas. Um, the Cowboys, of course, lost Dak Prescott during the game, which made their offense more, more problematic. But Brady looked sharp. He was throwing the ball with authority. Um, Mike Evans appears to be his new favorite guy. Uh, but Julio Jones, they were trying to work into the into the receiving mix. 
Uh, and that, that's probably a good sign for them. I think he looks, he looks fine. Um, I don't think they'll have a problem. The offensive line held up pretty well. Um, Micah Parsons got a couple of sacks, but Micah Parsons is Micah Parsons. And, um, you know, I, I think Tampa will be there in the end in, in the, um, in the NFC. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to think of whether I, I had Tampa and Green Bay, I think, in the NFC Championship and the Green Bay winning based on National Jump to Conclusions Week. I'd have Tampa winning that game uh, right now. The Rams, of course, lost to Buffalo on Thursday. So uh, they're now eliminated for the season. <laughs> yeah, as are the San Francisco 49ers. Who's, um... Oh, were they awful? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, but yeah, I mean, in conditions that you wouldn't you wouldn't play a Division Three mat, football match in, you know, um, it, it was pretty awful at Soldier Field. But but they just couldn't put put an offense together, and um, you know, it could be it could be Jimmy G time sooner rather than later in San Francisco. Trey Lance showed so showed some good things, but uh, when they lost Elijah Mitchell at running back, their their whole offense kind of collapsed. You know, they they almost would have to move Debo Samuel to full time running back, and that would be a, a, a bad thing for them to do. But Mike, uh, Kyle Shanahan is the greatest football genius that has ever walked the planet. So why is it that everybody who uses his offense seems to be more successful using his offense than the creator and originator of the offense itself? <laughs> That's a very good question, which might be answered by the fact that, um, like many geniuses, he has too much faith in his own genius, um, you know, which is the whole Trey Lance situation. They they fell in love with Trey Lance. Originally, they were, you know, the, he wasn't even the guy that they had. They, I think it was Mac Jones who originally they had their eye on, and they traded up to make sure they could get the quarterback they want in that draft. And and then he watched Trey Lance and fell in love with, with his talent, which is, you know, he's got he's got a lot of potential. Um and uh yeah you know, things things fell apart from there the uh the the niners I, I think they they looked good enough uh defensively against a team you know where chicago's main offense comes when justin fields can can make plays that are on in broken breakdown situations so so i think they'll be okay there but they they're going to have to put that that offense together and hope that everybody stays healthy which is in past couple of years, they've had a lot of trouble with that. And that is the great lottery across the, the whole of the league. Dak Prescott was supposed to have a, an amazing season this year, but he's, he's going to be out now for how, yeah. heaven knows how long. And also the Cowboys kind of stunk in, in that game. Either way, they do have injury problems. What What is their offense? Who are their offensive stars going to be? like? Yeah, and their line is a mess now, of course, with Tyron, Tyron Smith going out, and then they signed Jason Peters, the kind of you know, last-minute 40-year-old injury-prone replacement. A great, a great tackle when he's healthy, even at 40, but, but that, that's not really go, going to work. And Zeke Elliott and Pollard didn't do very much, but I think that's partly a factor of the line. And, and um, the Giants won, as, as we said, and, and Saquon Barkley looked like the Saquon Barkley of old. So, you know, that may be a very positive side for them. I also like the idea that a coach with a minute left in the game, uh, extra point for the tie, two point uh, conversion for the win goes for the win. Um, you know, I just think that's so refreshing, refreshing when coaches play to win and, and don't play uh, not to lose. And uh, they got rewarded because, uh, um, Randy Bullock missed a field goal that, that could have win it, won it for uh, Tennessee. Um, Randy Bullock looks kind of like the guy that you're sitting next to in the pub, and someone says, "Randy, you got to kick a field goal." <laughs> He's such a second, and he you know fires down the shot and the beer, and then <laughs> and then goes off onto the field. Uh, um, but 
I think I, I think uh, that was it was really good for the Giants. Uh, you know, I, I like the fact that 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 uh, that uh, you know daring to win paid off for them. Yeah, for for a team who were supposed to be a complete joke, they they all of a sudden are up and running and have a, a little bit of uh, hype about them. The the contract that um, the Ravens were supposed to do with Lamar Miller, uh, sorry Lamar Jackson, didn't get done, and uh, he is representing himself, which is very unusual. He seems to have turned down 250 million because it wasn't fully guaranteed at the time of signing. So this season is going to be one of those seasons where we watch a player back himself for yeah. the greatest riches that we've ever seen in potentially in, in any team sport because if he backs himself and, and wins, then whoever he plays for will have to pay him. Now, more than likely, they'll franchise tag him and, and have to pay him 50 million next year and he'll be happy enough with that. But... Um, or maybe he'll refuse to play. I don't know. But he, yeah. he started the season pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, their first drive or whatever, he didn't start very well. And I, and I you know, tweeted out, you know, every time he throws an incompletion, it's like ten million go down off the off the deal. Um, but then he came he came around and looked very good. Um, and they uh, Devin Duvernay, who they've been waiting to sort of step up for a couple of years, stepped up uh, with a couple of great catches for him as well. I, I think. One of the things that really bothers me is is how a lot of uh, Twitter and and uh, columnists and stuff try to psychoanalyze people they don't know. You know, oh well, he didn't get his contract; he's not going to play. You know, he, he's he's going to just take it easy or something. Like that. It's exactly the opposite. I think uh, it's what you said. He's he's basically betting on himself, and, and he's going to show everybody um, how good he is. And, and the sad part is that. Um, Teams are held to ransom in the salary cap era by the dumbest owner around. So the owner who's willing to sign a guy who's, you know, facing a year long suspension and give him a fully guaranteed contract or uh, the one who's willing to cave to Kyler Murray's uh, temper tantrums over the summer and give him a huge contract. Um, you know, now Lamar Jackson wants some of that and, and quite justifiably. And I think what, I think the franchise tag is probably the most logical thing, because I think ba- uh, Baltimore, who are not uh, generally a a big spending team. They tend to sign their guys to um, longer term contracts and put the money up front so that they can get them for a slightly cheaper annual rate. I'm not sure that's going to fly with, with Lamar, but I'm also not convinced that Baltimore will worry that much about it. They, I mean, they may be in a situation where they can't get around it, but Lamar Jackson's such a, a special talent that you almost have to mold your offense around him. And I'm not sure there will a lot of teams that are going to be willing to make that kind of a change if that's what it comes to. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, what we saw was, was, was going to be Buffalo, uh, sorry, Baltimore at its best. Uh, now it was against the jets. So yeah. take it with, with a large grain of salt. Um, and Joe Flacco was the quarterback on the other side, which gave it a little extra pinch of pepper as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think Lamar is going to have a good season uh, unless he gets hurt. And this is the thing. A guy who's asking for a fully guaranteed contract is coming off a season where he missed half the season through injury in a sport where quarterbacks, most teams tend to protect their quarterbacks from injury. But, but Baltimore is willing to let him run with the ball and risk it again. Yeah, no, it's all fair points. Mike, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thanks, Jeff.
It's Mike Carlson giving us some thoughts on the NFL season, which is up and running after the first weekend of games. A reminder, OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. OTB AM on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. OTB Sports Rugby. Far from everyone thinks that I am the best that's played give or take so. give or take give or take that's kind of your that's how you're defined that's how you're remembered that's how you're regarded is that is that's, that's you're kind of happy enough that that's how you're known forevermore ah oh, no I prefer to be second <laughs> or third <laughs> or of course subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now things that put people off on a first date showing up late and getting your name wrong always a great start looking at their phone more than you Eh, uh, hello someone who only talks about themselves Oh, really? God, aren't you great? Look, no one said dating is perfect, but at godating.ie, we promise we'll always try and find your perfect match. Because somewhere out there, there's someone for you. And godating.ie will help you find them. Yes, even you, socks and sandals guy. Go on. Go for it with GoDating.ie. Celebrate European Week of Sport this September at the Be Active Festival. An action-packed day out for the whole family at Sport Ireland Campus Blanchardstown. Come and try new sports, fitness challenges and skill tests at Ireland's biggest sporting festival. Meet sporting legends. Check out the Inflatable Zone, Village Food Market and much more. There's something for everyone at the Be Active Festival. Saturday, September 24th at Sport Ireland Campus Blanchardstown. Book your tickets now at beactivefestival.ie OTB AM With Gillette Get into your flow With the new Gillette Labs Razor With exfoliating bar Right, Jenny Claffey is with us to talk tennis The uh, the birth, the full unveiling of new superstars Kind of as we predicted uh, at the start of the tournament um, Alcaraz, he the man And Schwantek she the woman yes they are definitely the two stars of the future of the tennis game exciting to see two new names and big stars winning the title and quite convincingly winning the title both of them um, we saw obviously Alcaraz had a, had a relatively not easy match against Rude, but he had much tougher matches in, in the rounds before that but we've been talking about him for a while now and he is going to be the star of the men's game Strantek we know a little bit more about this is her third Grand Slam so we know that and she's the world number one so we know that she has the potential but these are going to be the names and lights for the next few years definitely Alcaraz came through three five setters before the final which is um, yeah it's great for uh, prime time everybody getting to know him you know it's good for the brand uh, if any like it's an amazing way to win to come through those yeah to have those tough matches definitely shows his his character you know and his grit and his strength his resilience to, to win three back to back five setters and he played all of his matches on, on Ash on that centre court um, and he played under the lights as well so he was he was playing his last match against TFO until three o'clock in the morning or something yeah. and then had to try and recover with the day only between that and the final I mean he's he's something else this guy he's a special special player it's like the sport knew that they needed to turn him into a superstar so they're like look we're just going to make sure that your schedule for the peak viewing hours well, maybe three o'clock in the morning isn't yeah. doing hours. Everybody giving up on it at that stage. But what is it about his game that makes him so set for the hard courts? What like what is his talent set compared to kind of some of the other greats? Well, just his game, his game on general on any surface. But he, he just. You can, it's hard to fault him you know he's got this sheer power that he can play with his forehand and his serve he can really like just create this amazing racket head speed through through his shots you know it's, his backhand is very solid like looking comparing him to Rude last night in the final you know he was much more um, solid off the backhand side than Rude he's able to play with drop shots he serves in volleys he serves in volleys at the most random times it's it's amazing that he has this you know his tactical awareness um, unlike any other player that we've seen he kind of can compare him a little bit more to Roger Federer 
as opposed to Nadal, even though he is he is Spanish. Right. Um, on the hard court, the way it, it suits his game because he can be a little bit more aggressive and he plays very aggressively and he doesn't let his opponents in. Like he's up on top of that baseline, playing real aggressive game style. And where does the game evolve for him then? Because obviously, like you know, we, we look back at um, the nineteen-year-olds. We were talking earlier. Um, uh, Samper similar age when he won but like the 19 year old Rafa versus the 30 year old Rafa or even the 19 year old Roger Federer versus the 27 year old Federer so like there's, there's much more still to come Yeah his, his coach Juan Carlos Ferrer was saying that he feels like he's only at 60% of his ability at the moment so that's kind of a scary thought he's only 19 he's already the world number one and he's won a Grand Slam what is the future going to hold for him I think in looking at his game overall he needs to improve a little bit his return of serve um, I think his serve in general could actually improve as well he plays kind of percentage serve so he doesn't go for the lines as much or go for as much power as you might see some of the other players he uses the body serve very effectively because he can back that up with his massive forehand um, and I think yeah his kind of mo- maturity on the court like tactically he could improve and structure his points a little bit better because he can't always be that showman and play those five set matches that's just not going to be well, I was going to say the athleticism is obviously there as well at the moment um, that allows him to do that uh, so who what kind of a challenge did um, Rudd put up for him? Not really a huge one, I thought. Like, if you look and look at the sets, like the first set, he wasn't really challenged at all. Alcaraz by Rude, he broke serve um, relatively early on, then just held his serve quite easily. He kind of had a bit of a blip in the second set. Alcaraz, he he switched off mentally. He looked maybe a little bit tired, as we mentioned. You know, he played three five set matches late into the night, and that kind of showed in the second set. But he got it back together in the third. Rude has chances in in the third set. He had uh, two set points, so it could have been a different match. But I think Alcaraz always had it in him that he was going to win this match, um, and it looked like he was the likely winner the whole time we were also talking about this a bit earlier on about the Wimbledon situation and, and um, neither of these two Schwantek or Alcaraz were super competitive I think Alcaraz was okay in the early rounds but never quite reached the, the situation um, where he, we thought he was going to win it uh, was there anything behind that? Was it just like they're better hardcore players at the moment in their careers? Well, the the grass is always a tricky transition for the players, you know, coming from clay court onto the grass court. It's always uh, very different. It plays a lot faster than a clay court, than a clay court does. The points are a lot quicker. Um, Alcaraz just couldn't get his footing right, it seemed, his footwork right, and that's such a big part of his game. He moves unbelievably well. He's probably one of the best movers in, in the game. Um, and as you mentioned, athleticism, it just didn't come to form in, in Wimbledon. And then Sviantic, yes, yeah, she didn't have a great Wimbledon either. Again, she she was saying that the surface was a bit of an issue for her. And she her again, she's an amazing mover. She wasn't able to get into the match with her, her footwork and into position that she needed to. Um, I think on the hardcourt, though, that transition, Alcaraz definitely suits the hardcourt even more than Shiontek's game does. Whereas Shiontek is definitely more of a, a clay court kind of a player where she likes to build up the points and then goes, takes her time and then pulls the pulls the trigger and goes for the winner whereas Alcaraz plays hot tennis from the very first shot of the rally for just a question about Rube for what does he need to do now because obviously we've seen him in two Grand Slam finals both of them not been all that impressive and it seems to me he gets goes on a run gets to that point and then just slips off is it an experience thing is it a mentality thing or is it just that his game isn't at the same level as some of the other players yeah tough two losses for him this year I mean the first one against Nadal nobody had Rude as, as the favourite whereas last night he, you know, he went into that match we could say 50-50 you know the chances for him to win it um, he had been there before so he had the experience there but I think it's his game maybe faltered a little bit uh, 
in those two finals, especially looking at last night's one. Um, his backhand let him down a little bit. He wasn't serving as well as, as he could. Like in the first set, he had less than 50% for a serve, which is really poor in the men's side. Like they need to be serving well and up in the 70s, you know, to be holding serve. So I think there may be... And not necessarily a belief. I don't think it's necessarily a belief because he really did think he was going to win that last night. So I think it does come back to his game and the way he structures, the way he uh, tactically his his points, trying to play on that forehand a lot becomes very predictable for players. So players are able to read how he's going to play. Um, I think it's gonna they're going to have to go back to the drawing room and, and improve a few things, as I mentioned, the backhand and his serve as well. So who is most likely to emerge from that uh, group to be Alcaraz's main challenger over the next while it doesn't sound like you think Rude is is ahead of say is it Sinner or any of those other guys I think yeah like the likes of Sinner and Rublev if they make a few adjustments to their games they could be and Zverev as we've, we know him and um, team who's injured at the moment like those guys we've been talking about them as being the next gen and then Alcaraz just came kind of out of nowhere last yeah. year and he's now the next hot shot um, I think yeah, some of the guys are going to have to adjust their players, their games to play against the likes of Alcaraz because Alcaraz can just do anything from anywhere on the court. So it does sound like you think he can be competitive on grass at Wimbledon. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, definitely. He, I think he'd only played like three matches or three tournaments on grass ever before Wimbledon this year. So I think he just needs experience. I mean, as we said, he's only 19. But also on that note, I'd love to see Djokovic and Alcaraz playing over the next two or three years when Djokovic, if he gets back to, to playing the tournament. Is he, is he going to be able to play Australia? Not based on that. This year is... And maybe not America next year either. So it's literally only France and Wimbledon. Yeah, and then even at the other, the Masters tournaments yeah. and whatnot, I'd love to see them competing because I think that's going to give Djokovic a bit of fire in his belly like that he's not done yet and Alcaraz is, is the next up and coming. So that'll be some spicy matches, I think. And Nadal's injuries, we were talking about this too earlier, If like you would expect if he is going to be competitive it'll be in Australia and then really it'll be in Paris next year Yeah I, I reckon he's going to have a layoff now for the winter season and, and maybe not compete too much in the hard court um, this kind of time up and coming time and leave his his competitive uh, matches until Australia and as you said the French Open I think with the injuries he's had and his wife's expecting a baby you know the, his priorities may shift over the coming months years so hopefully this is not the end for Nadal but uh, I still think he'll remain competitive, but he just won't be featuring a huge amount. Okay. What kind of a tournament did Schwantek have? I'm just looking here. She dropped a couple of sets, but was never really in danger of losing any matches. She had a very kind of ropey start to the the US Open. She came in with not great form. I think her best result since winning the French Open in May was a quarter final. So she hasn't got much form coming into coming into the US Open, and she didn't look comfortable. I, I felt in the first few rounds in the US Open, um, she doesn't really like New York. She said she was saying that she doesn't like the noise and the buzz that it creates there. She was giving out about the balls. The, I know. <laughs> Yeah, the men and women play with different balls. And that's crazy. That yeah, is. That, that does is, sound ridiculous. That is. Yeah, that's crazy. But um, so she was kind of given out about that. But she played two tournaments before the US Open to get used to that. So I mean, that you know that shouldn't really be an issue, um, other than the bigger issue of them playing with different balls. Uh, and then she got challenged. She had, like I said, two, three set matches coming into this final. And um, her semi final, she was challenged by Sabalenka. She was four two down in the third set. Okay, right. So she turned that one around, which was uh, a big deal. And also, she came from the two matches. She was in three sets. She was. She lost 
lost the first set. It's a great sign of a champion that she's able to figure it out and find a way to win those matches. And we saw her play her best match, I think, in the final against Shabur. She just was a different player to the player we saw for the previous two weeks, playing very aggressively from the very get-go. Like she won the first three games in eight minutes. It's just phenomenal stuff. Um, but amazing for her to be able to win, having not played her best throughout the tournament. So the the ceiling for her with the three Grand Slams won at the age of 21 is obviously, you know, anything is possible. She could go on and dominate the sport. But we've also seen um, people who get that successful early struggle a little bit um, over the last number of years in particular. Is that because the pressure to be the next Serena is so great? Like We were trying to speculate earlier on about how the three lads together seem to drive each other on. Yeah. Um, whereas it seems to have been kind of, everybody's been slightly under the shadow of Serena in the women's game so you reach a high you get put up on a pedestal and then it's very difficult to maintain that I mean these are obviously pop psychology theories here so uh, either indulge them or shoot them down Yeah well I think with Svantec she has shown that she is dominant as the world number one she's backed up a Grand Slam win this year which you know that is a sign of of a champion and that's the first time that's happened in the last six years in the women's game so you can see there's been such a topsy-turvy sign in the women's game over the last few years since Williams has kind of not been dominating I think it's taken it's going to take a few years like and it has obviously in the last few years taken a few years for us to get that champion um, I think Shantek is going to be that and she's going to remain in that pole position uh, she's not going to be challenged uh, well sorry I don't think she's going to be challenged a huge amount um, next year maybe by Jabur maybe by Ribikina who won Wimbledon this year those hard hitters but she's able to play against any game style so she's able to figure it out in the moment and that's something that she alluded to in her press conferences during the tournament was that you know she felt like she, she was very proud of herself because she was able to work it out on the match court against the different game styles and when she was had her back against the wall so that's she's really like showing her, her dominance I think this this year by backing that up. In terms of the footwork that you were talking about a little bit earlier on around Wimbledon, is that teachable? I mean, obviously it's teachable, but how teachable is it, I guess? The footwork for her in general? No, just specifically the things that she needs to get better at to be someone who could maybe do a Grand Slam um, yeah, the calendar slam. Yeah, yeah, that's just more time on the grass court. I think she didn't after the French Open last year. She didn't play in any tournament before Wimbledon, so she had no practice. Right. So it's going to just take some time, you know, playing some of those um, run-up tournaments before Wimbledon, or just getting a little bit more time on the grass. Um, and is that like sitting down at the start of the year and mapping out your course and deciding actually something ridiculous like trying to do the calendar slam? I can do that now because I'm like, I, you know, she yeah. has that. Like she yeah. has the. Is there a freedom that comes from being as successful as she is now at this age that will allow her to maybe not just show up at random tournament to win it for whatever, you know, points or any of that kind of stuff? Well, there's always going to be the expectation that she she's going to put on herself, but also that others will put on herself, being the one number one that she's going to turn up and win those tournaments. But yeah, they normally lay out their t- tournament schedule at the start of the year and will, if she thinks she could win the calendar slam, will try and pick the tournaments you know, pick and choose basically. Yeah, because like it seems like an oversight now in retrospect not to have played it uh, Eastbourne or somewhere yes, before Wimbledon. Birmingham, yeah, yeah. Now that we look back, hindsight, yeah. But looking forward, if she wants to win Wimbledon, she may have to play on those those tournaments, like the as you mentioned, Bournemouth or Birmingham. Those tournaments that are are before um, Wimbledon, just to get a bit more time. But then if she wins the French Open, you know, those tournaments are straight after that. So there's a, there's that question of do we take a a bit of time off or do you go yeah. straight into that grass court season? Yeah, um, and look, maybe 
maybe it's ridiculous maybe she'll win two majors every year and one of them won't be Wimbledon and she'll have an amazing career at the end where she looks back and goes oh, I won 20 majors you know I still think she'll win she'll win in Wimbledon I think her dominance is, is there to, to win all four on any surface she can play on any surface she's, we all in the beginning were saying oh she had this amazing match streak on clay courts but then could she convert that to the hard courts which plays much faster and she just shown she can so in Australia is on hard court as well so it'll be interesting to see who's going to put it up to her in Australia um, what's the rest of the season like for for these guys now? Is it um there's a bit of a layoff now and then they'll they go into the the winter indoor hardcourt season and then they have the final championships at the end of the year where the top eight players come together and play against each other. Um, so we'll see then who ends up as as the that's basically one. a money fight, right? Completely, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I often wonder, like, um, as as a an aficionado as someone who understands the level of tennis being played do they reach the same levels in those competitions as they do in the majors are they playing as well it's always hard to compare to those the Grand Slams because that is where it's at and that's what you're remembered for as a tennis player is the Grand Slam wins and you've seen over the years like players winning those end of year tournaments and nobody really remembers them for it yeah as you said it's almost a little bit more exhibition like those tournaments as opposed to the Grand Slams which is as you said where it really counts yeah so you do, do, they, do they hit the ball as hard? They still go out and do play. Do they chase it down as hard? Of course they do. Like I they mean, do, yeah. yeah, that's in you as an athlete to win. You know that will to win. You can't turn that off. But there may be more, even more trick shots played and whatnot. Yeah. I'm saying that, but that's not necessarily the case. They all want to win. There's a lot of money on the line. Yeah. So the motivation is similar, um, and the standard is the same. So we should tune in. Yes, absolutely, definitely, yes. All right, well, that makes sense. Uh, so all in all, not a bad tennis season. No, we've seen a lot of uh, highs and lows. And the, and the guard is changing in the men's game now, so it's exciting for the future of tennis. Yeah, because well, if you think about like um, the last two weeks in the build-up were completely overshadowed by the fact that uh, in vogue, Serena was like, OK, I'm yeah. done, officially it's over. And now it's kind of like, well, OK, fair enough. We kind of knew you were finished anyway. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that was it. Yeah. And if, if none of the other three in the men's were to ever win a Grand Slam again, we've had a good time. Yeah, we've seen a lot of Say goodbye to them too. Would you think so? I think so, yeah. I don't think it's the end though. Well, I'd love to see Alcaraz smash Djokovic a couple of times over the next couple of years. So would I. There you go. I think we'd all pay for that. (laughs) On that note, Jenny, thanks very much. Thank you, guys. OTB AM With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.